0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 250, 250 episodes. It's titled, Rule Number One, Avoid Ruin. Next month, May 2019, will be my fifth anniversary of the podcast. I've recorded over 250 episodes. This is numbered episode 250. The show has had over 10 million downloads. There are 1,000 premium subscribers who are members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. They get the ad-free version of the podcast, plus additional content. There are over 220 Q&A plus episodes, dozens and dozens of monthly investment conditions reports, model portfolios. So I'm producing a lot of content. And by doing so, I get better. That's what I've learned about doing the show or doing anything for some length of time. It's that way with investing. It's that way with audio. It's that way for video. I record a weekly video or most weeks on YouTube. I'm getting better. There are things I know about audio recording now that I didn't know five years ago. It didn't even occur to me. Small nuances. And I do the show because it helps me learn, but it also helps me to improve on my craft. Thank you for listening. For many of you listened from the beginning, thank you for sharing the podcast with others. That I really, really appreciate. Just a note, Money for the Rest of Us Plus usually is closed to new members, but it's now open for spring 2019 enrollment. You can check that out at moneyfortherestofus.com. There are three individuals that I have learned the most from when it comes to investing. They influenced how I manage money as an investment advisor, and they influence how I manage money today. The first is Seth Klarman, who runs the hedge fund Balpost Group. He used to manage or still manages money for one of my former clients. I spent a lot of time or some time with him, certainly many hours reading his annual letters, but also spent some in-person time with him over the years. The second is Ned Davis of Ned Davis Research. I've subscribed to their service for over 15 years, and have learned an incredible amount from him and his colleagues at Ned Davis Research. And the third person is Nassim Nicholas Taleb. One of his teachings I want to share today, it's from skin in the game. From that, I derive the number one rule of investing, which we're going to talk about. That number one rule is avoid ruin. Here's what Taleb wrote. I effectively have organized all my life around the point that sequence matters and the presence of ruin disqualifies cost-benefit analysis. What does that mean? That sequence matters and the presence of ruin disqualifies cost-benefit analysis. Well, this past week, I was visiting with a friend. He was recently diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm. An aortic aneurysm is an abnormal bulge in the wall of a major blood vessel, the, the aorta, that carries blood from your heart to your body. That's from the Mayo Clinic describing that. It's the same condition that I have. I've mentioned it on the show, but I don't mention it very often because mine's fairly benign. I have it checked every two years by the Cleveland Clinic. It hasn't changed, but his is much more severe. And the risk of dissection... Effectively, the aorta tears is much higher for him. So he's contemplating open-heart surgery to replace the section of the aorta that has the bulge with a fabric graft. The doctors tell him right now, untreated, he has a 7% risk of a dissection in any given year. I looked it up and found that about 20% of patients with the aortic dissection, essentially tears, die Before reaching the hospital, without treatment, mortality rate is about 30% in the first week, 80% after two weeks, and 90% after one year. The hospital mortality rate, if you go and, and you're treated, mortality is 30%. When I researched this, probably been 10 years or so since I was diagnosed, one quote I remember it was You do not want this surgery. The mortality rates at the time were over 5%. I searched, not knowing anything about this, who am I going to go to for help? And I ended up choosing the Cleveland Clinic because they published the statistics of their outcomes. I shared these statistics with my friend. Cleveland Clinic does 500 to 600 elective ascending aorta repair surgeries per year. The mortality rate, has averaged 1.2% per year for the past five years. 2.7% risk of stroke during operation. My friend is in his late 40s. A healthy individual in his late 40s has about a 0.4% probability of dying that year. This is according to the Social Security Administration. He has a decision to make. There's a 1% chance of probability of dying during the operation, based on the statistics at the Cleveland Clinic. But there's a 7% probability of dissection, of the aorta, in which case the the risk of dying increases. You can't compare the 1% probability of surgery death to the 7% probability of dissection. These probabilities are across an entire population, which means 7 out of 100 individuals with a severe aortic aneurysm, will die this year. But if each year there is a 7% probability you will die from an aortic dissection, then as time passes, your probability of dying approaches 100%. You'll die sooner rather than later. But that's different for the surgery. Well, in some ways, it's the same. If you had this surgery every year and there was a 1% to 2% chance of dying, eventually it wouldn't work out and you would die. But in his case, he just needs to do the surgery once. And by doing so, his probability of dying in any given year will fall significantly. What Talib means that sequence matters is that we live through time, that we're changed by events as time passes. And if there is an event that can ruin us, can kill us, bankrupt us, particularly with repeated exposure, such as the case with my friend, he has repeated exposure to the probability of his aorta dissecting. If we have that repeated exposure, then it's better to reduce it. Rather than trying to get better at forecasting probabilities, it's better to just reduce that exposure. There's a paper by O. Peters and M. Gelman called Evaluating Gambles Using Dynamics. They write, gambles are often treated in economics as so-called one-shot games, meaning they are not part of any dynamic and are assumed to reside outside of time. A Monte Carlo simulation where you run 5,000 iterations on a particular portfolio that that takes place out time we're not living through that it's a, it's a statistical analysis but in life we are changed by the events we just get one shot and we're going through time we're not calculating probabilities outside of time they continue if we lose our house we cannot bet the house again the typical decision problem only makes sense in the context of a notion of irreversible time in dynamics. We cannot go back in time after the gamble, and our future will be affected by the decisions we make today. So when we talk about avoiding ruin, the reason why is because once it's here, we can't go back in time. And so it's better to do things now, to avoid it. Talib writes in anti-fragile. The payoff. What happens to you, i.e. the benefits or harm from it, is always the most important thing, not the event itself. I talk about this in my book in terms of what is risk. Risk is the personal financial harm of an event in the financial market. It's the personal harm. and not It's not just the event. It's how it affects you through time. Taleb continues, instead of trying to improve our ability to predict the future, It is vastly more effective to modify your exposure and learn to get out of trouble. Modify our exposure. I thought about this a lot this week. I came across a really cool paper. It's called Stock Market Charts You Never Saw. It's by Edward F. McQuarrie. He's a professor emeritus. He's not a finance professor, which means he's he's outside of the mainstream, which is why I like him. He writes, investors have seen countless charts of U.S. stock market performance, which start in 1926 and end near the present. But U.S. trading long predates 1926, and the foreshortened perspective that results from a focus on post-1926 data can be misleading. To compound the problem, visual and arithmetic frailties as cataloged and behavioral finance make it difficult for investors to draw appropriate inferences from long-term records of performance. Have you seen these charts? From 1926, it shows how much you would have made a dollar invested. And yeah, there's there's some dips, but at the end, hey, stocks for the long run, you're going to come out ahead. Except we don't invest over a 93-year period we invest in smaller chunks of time a 30-year retirement 35 years saving for retirement what happened during those shorter time frames bonds outperformed stocks from 1865 to 1901 that's a 36-year period the markets were primarily consisted of railroad stocks and railroad bonds bonds outperformed stocks from 1929 to 1951. That's a 22-year period. Stocks and bonds were about the same from February 1980 to February 2009. That's a 29-year period. And there's all these periods in between. Stocks lagged bonds from 1830 to 1861. They significantly outperformed bonds from 1861 to 1906. Stocks lagged bonds from 1906 to 1949. And then, since 1949 to 1999, stocks outperformed. Your starting and ending point makes a huge difference. He writes, The best one-sentence summary of the 210-year record would be that sometimes stocks outperform bonds. But at other times, bonds outperformed stocks, while much of the time stocks and bonds performed about the same. Needless to say, this flies in the face of conventional wisdom. The ill legitimacy of that assertion that stocks must dominate bonds cannot readily be seen in long term charts dominated by the period after 1940. There's no guarantee that stocks will outperform bonds. They don't always. In theory, they should. When we look at the building blocks of what drives returns for stocks. First, it's the cash flow. The dividends, which is a share of profits received. Then it's how those dividends grow over time, which is tied to the earnings growth of the companies. The third component is the change in how investors are valuing those cash flows. What's the price to earnings ratio? What are they willing to pay for a dollar's worth of earnings? That's a huge influence on returns. Bonds are just driven by the cash flows, the interest rates, also potentially by defaults. But generally, for investment grade bonds, defaults have had essentially no, very, very, very little impact on returns. But there's times when that income from bonds, as it's reinvested, outperforms stocks. Because stock dividends might be low. Because investors got fearful and valuations plummeted. McQuarrie writes, An investor who bought near the top of the 1920s bull market but reinvested all dividends grew an initial $10,000 investment into about $9.3 million of nominal final wealth, even when evaluated near the bottom of the 2007-2008 bust. That's huge. $10,000 to $9.3 million. Conversely, he continues, when in valued in constant dollars, in other words, after adjusting for inflation and with dividends spent along the way, as a retiree might do, that same $10,000 investment produced a bit more than $33,000 in real final wealth. The 300-fold difference captures the effect of omitting dividends and adjusting for inflation. Put another way, since 1928, dividends plus inflation accounted for 99.7% of the nominal wealth produced as of 2008 by investing in stocks. 99.7%. It's the cash flow, it's the dividend, and it's reinvesting the dividend, and it's the impact of inflation over time. He says few contemporary investors expect a multi-decade return on their stock portfolios of 1% to 2% per year. But it's possible, and that's why we need to look at conditions. Where are we today? Before we look at those conditions, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, You must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow, all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at NetSuite. Dot com slash David. That's NetSuite.com slash David. NetSuite.com slash David. Dividend yields for U.S. stocks right now are 2%. That compares to 3% dividend yield going back to 1969. So it's below average. The dividend yield for non-U.S. developed stocks is 3.4% versus 3% average going back to 1969. So the dividend yield for non-U.S. developed stocks is is higher than average and 1.4% higher than U.S. What are investors paying for that cash flow? They're paying 20.2. That's the PE of U.S. stocks based on the trailing 12-month earnings. The average is 17.5. Non-U.S. developed markets, excluding emerging markets, have a PE of 14.9. The average is around 19 going back to 1969. So they're much cheaper than average. So if you're investing, if you get a higher dividend yield for non-U.S. developed stocks and they're cheaper on a valuation basis, we're not going to discuss the earnings growth, but let's say earnings growth is comparable between the two, then non-U.S. stocks are expected to earn more. Than U.S. stocks. In fact, on Money for the rest Restless Plus, that's the assumption. The assumption is U.S. stocks over the next decade will have an annualized nominal return of 5.6%, with a probable range of negative 2.5% to 8%, non-U.S. excluding emerging markets, an expected nominal annualized return of 6.8%, and a range of 45 to 10.5%. Now, there's no way of knowing what will happen over this next decade, but uh, these are reasonable assumptions based on starting conditions. A reasonable assumption for U.S. bonds over the next decade is a return of 2.9% to 3.1% based on starting yields. Global bonds, much lower. European bonds, 0.7% annualized. U.K. bonds, about 6.1%. That's the starting conditions. Having some reasonable assumptions are important, but recognizing it doesn't have to be that way. And this becomes really, really important when it comes to retirement spending, if you're in retirement. As you're saving for retirement, there's plenty of time, often because your balances are small, you're still saving. You can take more risk. You can have more in stocks. If stocks underperform bonds, it's not the end of the world because you continue to save. On Money for the Restless Plus, we've been discussing in the forums a little bit about How do you invest in retirement? What should be the spending rule? What should be the asset allocation? One of the members there brought to my attention a book. It's called Living Off Your Money. It's by Michael McClung. It's 350 pages. And he goes into very fine detail on different spending rules. The traditional rule is you spend 4% of your starting retirement nest egg balance and you increase that amount spent by the rate of inflation. That's just one rule. There's other ways to go about it. He analyzes about 20 or more. There are a number of risk factors when it comes to retirement. There's the withdrawal rate. There's how long are you going to live in terms of retirement length. There's portfolio returns. How does the portfolio do? What are the volatility of the returns? What about the sequence of returns? Are returns poor when you start out retiring or are they higher than normal? And inflation is a huge risk factor. McClung recognizes these factors, he describes them and then he tests the main point of the book is to test these different spending rules. He points out though there are known retirement risk which he defines as everything we know from the historical market data because he's running scenarios. He's saying, all right, if we use this asset mix, this spending rule, how did it perform if you retired in 1928, 1935, 1948, using a 30-year retirement period? And what he's trying to determine is what is known as the maximum sustainable withdrawal rate. What's the most you could spend using that retirement rule? where you didn't run out of money, where there wasn't retirement ruin. And he went through the analysis. But we know it depends on the time frame. We have 210 years of market data, according to Macquarie, who pulled some of it from respected sources and compiled it. But what, what time frame do we use? And that's what McClung, he points out, we have this known retirement risk. Everything we know from the historical market data but there's also speculative risk, which he defines as outside the boundaries of what has been seen in market history. That's why it's important. What, what market history are we using? Are we using since 1950? Are we using since 1928? Are we using since 1871? Now, to his credit, he used some different time periods. What I thought was interesting, and I'm not going to go into each of the strategies because... And there's one that he he recommends that he developed that's a little complicated called the prime income strategy and you're spending a certain percent but as when the, the idea is you don't sell stocks when they are down and so you're looking at how the stocks have done but his strategy performs the best under many scenarios but there's also times based on market returns where stocks get to be upwards of 70 to 80% of the portfolio, which to me, that's really high for a retiree. But what he found in terms of this maximum sustainable withdrawal rate, looking at the different options, if we use data from 1928 to 2010, so this is US data only, the range of the maximum that could be spent is 3.4% to 4.4%. That's from 1928 through 2010. So the best strategy, you could spend 4.4% in the initial year of retirement and not run out of money over a 30-year retirement window. If they used U.S. Schiller data from 1871 to 2010, the maximum sustainable rate was 3.3% to 3.8%. So a little lower. UK data from 1923 to 2010 was 2.2% to 3.8%. And Japan, from 1950 to 2010, it was from 3% to 4.3% in terms of the maximum that was sustainable withdrawal rate. Now, one of the analysis that he did, he says, well, what if we dropped out the 10% worst case scenarios? So instead of sort of the 100% maximum sustainable withdrawal rate, where there's no retirement ruin, no failure, what could the spending rate be if we ignored the 10% of the cases where the particular spending rule failed and only focused on the 90% that were successful. Well, if you do that, you can spend a lot more. It's upwards of 5%. But we live through time. We can't just do this outside of time. What if you were living in that scenario and the rule didn't work? You ran out of money. Here was the most interesting analysis that he did. He called it a bootstrapping simulation. He took The U.S. return data, stocks and bonds, from 1928, he applied a 4.5% inflation-adjusted spending rate. So he spent 4.5% the first year, adjusted the dollar amount by the rate of inflation. And then they took that market history and they resampled the returns. So they were random. So instead of the market doing like it did historically in 1928, they created 5,000 random markets, 30-year time periods to see how the spending rules did. They actually threw out, they they, they did a bound study where the annualized return in terms of these random portfolios had to be between 3% and 10%. So they threw out outliers that were really good, or really bad. And what they found was the success rate. What percent of the time did the portfolio not run out of money it was only seventy six to eighty six percent, depending on the the particular rule that they use. So they, they use different they all started with four and a half percent starting rate, but they used different rules that he analyzed the twenty or so that he did. That's not very high. Do you want to go into a retirement with a twenty five percent chance of running out of money? I wouldn't. I won't. Again, we're trying to avoid ruin. That that's rule number one. He also discusses variable withdrawal strategies. In other words, the amount you withdraw, you adjust based on how the portfolio does. In my mind, that that makes way more sense because those risk factors that I listed out, that's a lot of different things to try to balance. How much do you withdraw? How long are you going to live? What's the return? What's the volatility? What's the sequence? What's inflation coming in at? There can't be a hard, fast rule in my mind. This is a very helpful book to look at how the different strategies perform, but we have to recognize that it's based on just one data set, historical. And we can't put all of our confidence into this is what U.S. data has done, particularly when we look at we're at below average dividend yields right now and above average valuations. So what do we do instead? Ideally, in retirement, we have multiple streams of income that we're not solely dependent on our nest egg, our investment accounts. You either have a pension plan, which can be helpful, some type of social security, or you can structure an annuity, a single premium immediate annuity. Or you're working part-time. So you have these, these other cash flows to protect against the unknown. Yes, theoretically, stocks should outperform bonds based on the building blocks, but it doesn't have to be that way. Anything could happen. Yes, there are speculative risks as they're described. They're not risks that are found within the data unless you resample the data, like in his analysis with 5,000 scenarios, then they're there. But based on strict history, this is a helpful analysis, but there are times when it could not work out. And so what we're trying to do here is to build buffers, redundancy. In conclusion, we're living through time, not outside of time. It's helpful to look at studies like this, but we get one shot at retirement. We get one shot at life, and we change through time as events happen. So we have to be mindful of our exposure to risk and modify exposures when necessary so that we're not ruined. It can be in investing. It can be in business. It could be in any endeavor. We need to be flexible, recognize that we'll learn and change over time. Just like, as I've changed, as I've done money for the rest of us over the past five years, as I've changed how both how I deliver the message, what I offer for money for the rest of us, plus the things I've learned, I'm flexible. We need to be flexible in all areas. We need to build buffers, protections, additional savings. We get insurance. We build redundancies so that ultimately we can live a well-lived life and we avoid financial ruin. It can't just be stocks for the long run. Yes, they should outperform, but would I put 100% of my portfolio in stocks? No way. I want multiple drivers. I want to understand what are the building blocks that drives a particular investment opportunity's returns. I want to understand what has to happen for that to be successful. And I want to make sure that I don't put all my eggs in one basket. We talked about investment fraud last week. Individuals that are most harmed by fraud are ones that put their most trust in the individual, put way too much money, and didn't take precautions to avoid ruin if it was too good to be true. That's episode 250. Thanks again for listening. Everything I've shared with you in this episode's been for general education. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.